This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton. Section 10, Chapter 6, Part 1 The Philosopher. I should suppose that Caesar and Cleopatra marks about the turning tide of Bernard Shaw's fortune and fame. Up to this time he had known glory, but never success. He had been wondered at as something brilliant and barren like a meteor, but no one would accept him as a son. For the test of a son is that it can make something grow. Practically speaking, the two qualities of a modern drama are that it should play and that it should pay. It had been proved over and over again in weighty dramatic criticisms, in careful readers' reports, that the plays of Shaw could never play or pay, that the public did not want wit and the wars of intellect, and just about the time that this had been finally proved, the plays of Bernard Shaw promised to play like Charlie's aunt and to pay like Coleman's mustard. It is a fact in which we can all rejoice not only because it redeems the reputation of Bernard Shaw, but because it redeems the character of the English people. All that is bravest in human nature, open challenge and unexpected wit and angry conviction, are not so very unpopular as the publishers and managers in their motor-cars have been in the habit of telling us. But exactly because we have come to a turning point in the man's career, I propose to interrupt the mere catalogue of his plays and to treat his latest series rather as the proclamations of an acknowledged prophet. For the last plays, especially Man and Superman, are such that his whole position must be restated before attacking them seriously. For two reasons I have called this concluding series of plays, not again by the name of the dramatist, but by the general name of the philosopher, the first reason is that given above, that we have come to the time of his triumph and may therefore treat him as having gained complete possession of a pulpit of his own. But there is a second reason, that it was just about this time that he began to create not only a pulpit of his own, but a church and a creed of his own. It is a very fast and universal religion, and it is not his fault that he is the only member of it. The plainer way of putting it is this, that here, in the hour of his earthly victory, there dies in him the old mere denier, the mere dynamiter of criticism. In the warmth of popularity he begins to wish to put his faith positively, to offer some solid key to all creation. Perhaps the irony in the situation is this, that all the crowds are acclaiming him as the blasting and hypocritical buffoon, while he himself is seriously rallying his synthetic power, and with a grave face telling himself that it is time he had a faith to preach. His final success as a sort of charlatan coincides with his first grand failures as a theologian. For this reason I have deliberately called a halt in his dramatic career in order to consider these two essential points. What did the mass of Englishmen who had now learned to admire him, imagine his point of view to be. 
and second, what did he imagine it to be? Or, if the phrase be premature, what did he imagine it was going to be? In his latest work, especially in Man and Superman, Shaw has become a complete and colossal mystic. That mysticism does grow quite rationally out of his older arguments, but very few people ever trouble to trace the connection. In order to do so, it is necessary to say what was, at the time of his first success, the public impression of Shaw's philosophy. Now it is an irritating and pathetic thing that the three most popular phrases about Shaw are false. Modern criticism, like all weak things, is overloaded with words. In a healthy condition of language, a man finds it very difficult to say the right thing, but at last says it. In this empire of journalese, a man finds it so very easy to say the wrong thing that he never thinks of saying anything else. False or meaningless phrases lie so ready to his hand that it is easier to use them than not to use them. These wrong terms picked up through idleness are retained through habit, and so the man has begun to think wrong almost before he has begun to think at all. Such a lumbering logomachy is always injurious and oppressive to men of spirit, imagination, or intellectual honor, and it has dealt very recklessly and wrongly with Bernard Shaw. He has contrived to get about three newspaper phrases tied to his tail, and those newspaper phrases are all and separately wrong. The three superstitions about him, it would be conceded, are generally these. First, that he desires problem plays. Second, that he is paradoxical and third that in his dramas as elsewhere he is specially a socialist and the interesting thing is that when we come to his philosophy all these three phrases are quite peculiarly inapplicable to take the plays first there is a general disposition to describe that type of intimate or defiant drama which he approves as the problem play now the serious modern play is as a rule the very reverse of a problem play for there can be no problem unless both points of view are equally and urgently presented. Hamlet really is a problem play, because at the end of it one is really in doubt as to whether, upon the author's showing, Hamlet is something more than a man or something less. Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth are really problem plays in this sense, that the reader or spectator is really doubtful whether the high but harsh efficiency, valor, and ambition of Henry the Fifth are an improvement on his old blackguard comrade and whether he was not a better man when he was a thief. This hearty and healthy doubt is very common in Shakespeare. I mean a doubt that exists in the writer as well as in the reader. But Bernard Shaw is far too much of a Puritan to tolerate such doubts about points which he counts essential. There is no sort of doubt that the young lady in arms and the man is improved by losing her ideals. There is no sort of doubt that Captain Brassbound is improved by giving up the object of his life. But a better case can be found in something that both dramatists have been concerned with. Shaw wrote Caesar and Cleopatra, Shakespeare wrote Antony and Cleopatra, and also Julius Caesar. And exactly what annoys Bernard Shaw about Shakespeare's version is this, that Shakespeare has an open mind, or in other words, that Shakespeare has really written a problem play. Shakespeare sees quite as clearly as Shaw that Brutus is unpractical and ineffectual. 
but he also sees what is quite as plain and practical a fact that these ineffectual men do capture the hearts and influence the policies of mankind shaw would have nothing said in favour of brutus because brutus is on the wrong side in politics of the actual problem of public and private morality as it was presented to brutus he takes actually no notice at all he can write the most energetic and outspoken of propaganda plays but he cannot rise to a problem play he cannot really divide his mind and let the two parts speak independently to each other he has never so to speak actually split his head in two though i dare say there are many other people who are willing to do it for him sometimes especially in his later plays he allows his clear convictions to spoil even his admirable dialogue making one side entirely weak as in an evangelical tract i do not know whether in major barbara the young greek professor was supposed to be a fool as a popular tradition which i trust more than anything else declared that he is drawn from a real professor of my acquaintance who is anything but a fool i should imagine not but in that case i am all the more mystified by the incredibly weak fight which he makes in the play in answer to the elephantine sophistries of undershaft it is really a disgraceful case and almost the only case in shaw of there being no fair fight between the two sides for instance the professor mentions pity mr undershaft says with melodramatic scorn pity the scavenger of the universe now if any gentleman had said this to me i should have replied if i permit you to escape from the point by means of metaphors will you tell me whether you disapprove of scavengers instead of this obvious retort the miserable greek professor only says well then love to which Prundershaft replies with unnecessary violence that he won't have the Greek professor's love, to which the obvious answer, of course, would be, How the deuce can you prevent my loving you if I choose to do so? Instead of this, as far as I remember, that abject Helena says nothing at all. I only mention this unfair dialogue because it marks, I think, the recent hardening for good or evil of Shaw out of a dramatist into a mere philosopher and whoever hardens into a philosopher may be hardening into a fanatic. And just as there is nothing really problematic in Shaw's mind, so is there nothing really paradoxical. The meaning of the word paradoxical may indeed be made the subject of argument. In Greek, of course, it simply means something which is against the received opinion. In that sense, a missionary remonstrating with South Sea cannibals is paradoxical. But in the much more important world where words are used and altered in the using, paradox does not mean merely this. It means at least something of which the antimony or apparent inconsistency is sufficiently plain in the word used. And most commonly of all it means an idea expressed in a form which is verbally contradictory. Thus, for instance, the great saying that he shall lose his life, the same shall save it, is an example of what modern people mean by a paradox. If any learned person should read this book, which seems immeasurably improbable, he can content himself with putting it this way, that the moderns mistakenly say paradox when they should say oxymoron. Ultimately, in any case, it may be agreed that we commonly mean by a paradox some kind of collision, 
between what is seemingly and what is really true. Now, if by paradox we mean truth inherent in a contradiction, as in the saying of Christ that I have quoted, it is a very curious fact that Bernard Shaw is almost entirely without paradox. Moreover, he cannot even understand a paradox, and more than this, paradox is about the only thing in the world that he does not understand. All his splendid vistas and startling suggestions arise from carrying some one clear principle further than it has yet been carried. His madness is all consistency, not inconsistency. As the point can hardly be made clear without examples, let us take one example, the subject of education. Shaw has been all his life preaching to grown-up people the profound truth that liberty and responsibility go together, that the reason why freedom is so often easily withheld is simply that it is a terrible nuisance. This is true, though not the whole truth, of citizens and so when Shaw comes to children he can only apply to them the same principle that he has already applied to citizens. He begins to play with the Herbert Spencer idea of teaching children by experience. Perhaps the most fatuously silly idea that was ever gravenly put down in print. On that there is no need to dwell. One has only to ask how the experimental method is to be applied to a precipice, and the theory no longer exists. But Shaw effected a further development, if possible more fantastic. He said that one should never tell a child anything without letting him hear the opposite opinion. That is to say, when you tell Tommy not to hit his sick sister on the temple, you must make sure of the presence of some Nietzscheite professor who will explain to him that such a course might possibly serve to eliminate the unfit. When you are in the act of telling Susan not to drink out of the bottle labeled poison, you must telegraph for a Christian scientist who will be ready to maintain that, without her own consent, it cannot do her any harm. What would happen to a child brought up on Shaw's principle? I cannot conceive. I should think he would commit suicide in his bath. But that is not here the question. The point is that this proposition seems quite sufficiently wild and startling to ensure that its author, if he escapes Hanwell, would reach the front rank of journalists, demagogues, or public entertainers. It is a perfect paradox, if a paradox only means something that makes one jump. But it is not a paradox at all in the sense of a contradiction. It is not a contradiction, but an enormous and outrageous consistency. The one principle of free thought carried to a point to which no other sane man would consent to carry it. Exactly what Shaw does not understand is the paradox, the unavoidable paradox of childhood. Though this child is much better than I, yet I must teach it. Though this being has much purer passions than I, yet I must control it. Although Tommy is quite right to rush towards a precipice, yet he must be stood in the corner for doing it. This contradiction is the only possible condition of having to do with children at all. Anyone who talks about a child without feeling this paradox might just as well be talking about a merman. He has never even seen the animal. But this paradox Shaw in his intellectual simplicity cannot see. He cannot see it because it is a paradox. His only intellectual excitement is to carry one idea further and further across the world. It never occurs to him that it might meet another idea, 
and like the three winds in Martin Chuzzlewit, they might make a night of it. His only paradox is to pull out one thread or cord of truth longer and longer into waste and fantastic places. He does not allow for that deeper sort of paradox by which two opposite cords of truth become entangled in an inextricable knot. Still less can he be made to realize that it is often this knot which ties safely together the whole bundle of human life. This blindness to paradox everywhere perplexes his outlook. He cannot understand marriage because he will not understand the paradox of marriage, that the woman is all the more the house for not being the head of it. He cannot understand patriotism because he will not understand the paradox of patriotism, that one is all the more human for not merely loving humanity. He does not understand Christianity because he will not understand the paradox of Christianity, that we can only really understand all myths when we know that one of them is true. I do not underrate him for this anti-paradoxical temper. I concede that much of his finest and keenest work in the way of intellectual purification would have been difficult or impossible without it. But I say that here lies the limitation of that lucid and compelling mind. He cannot quite understand life, because he will not accept its contradictions. Nor is it by any means descriptive of Shaw to call him a socialist, in so far as that word can be extended to cover an ethical attitude. He is the least social of all socialists, and I pity the socialist state that tries to manage him. This anarchism of his is not a question of thinking for himself. Every decent man thinks for himself. It would be highly immodest to think for anybody else. Nor is it any instinctive license or egoism, as I have said before. He is a man of peculiarly acute public conscience. The unmanageable part of him, the fact that he cannot be conceived as part of a crowd or as really and invisibly helping a movement, has reference to another thing in him, or rather, to another thing not in him. The great defect of that fine intelligence is a failure to grasp and enjoy the things commonly called convention and tradition, which are foods upon which all human creatures must feed frequently, if they are to live. Very few modern people, of course, have any idea of what they are, Convention is very nearly the same word as democracy. It has again and again in history been used as an alternative word to Parliament. So far from suggesting anything stale or sober, the word convention rather conveys a hubbub. It is the coming together of men. Every mob is a convention. In its secondary sense, it means the common soul of such a crowd, its instinctive anger at the traitor, or its instinctive salutation of the flag. Conventions may be cruel, they may be unsuitable, they may even be grossly superstitious or obscene. But there is one thing that they never are. Conventions are never dead. They are always full of accumulated emotions, the piled up and passionate experiences of many generations asserting what they could not explain. To be inside any true convention, as the Chinese respect for parents or the European respect for children, is to be surrounded by something which, whatever else it is, is not leaden, lifeless, or automatic.
something which is taut and tingling with vitality at a hundred points, which is sensitive almost to madness, and which is so much alive that it can kill. Now Bernard Shaw has always made this one immense mistake, arising out of that bad progressive education of his, the mistake of treating convention as a dead thing, treating it as if it were a mere physical environment, like the pavement or the rain, whereas it is a result of will, a rain of blessings, and a pavement of good intentions. Let it be remembered that I am not discussing in what degree one should allow for tradition. I am saying that men like Shaw do not allow for it at all. If Shaw had found in early life that he was contradicted by Bradshaw's Railway Guide, or even by the Encyclopaedia Britannica, he would have felt at least that he might be wrong. But if he had found himself contradicted by his father and mother, he would have thought it all the more probable that he was right. If the issue of the last evening paper contradicted him, he might be troubled to investigate or explain. That the human tradition of two thousand years contradicted him did not trouble him for an instant. That Marx was not with him was important. That man was not with him was an irrelevant prehistoric joke. People have talked far too much about the paradoxes of Bernard Shaw. Perhaps his only pure paradox is this almost unconscious one, that he has tended to think that because something has satisfied generations of men, it must be untrue. End of section 10, chapter 6, part 1, The Philosopher.